Well, a few minutes ago, Jenny read our passage from Colossians 3, and I would imagine, as she did, that it provoked some different responses from probably everybody in the room. Now, some of you maybe heard those words about wives submitting and children obeying and husbands loving, and it all sounded a lot like a house that maybe you've experienced and flourished in and enjoyed being a part of. Or maybe you heard those and they reminded you of ways that at some difficult time those words have brought hope or healing or help in your marriage or in your parent-child relationships. And if that is the case, that is amazing. And I give thanks for that. But I would guess that that's actually not the majority experience in this room. I would guess that some of you heard those words and sort of groaned inwardly. That felt this like clenching up in your gut, felt like a wound getting pressed on, like a bruise. And there could be lots of reasons for that. Maybe you're someone who has been longing and praying and asking God for a life with a marriage, a spouse, children, and God hasn't granted it, and it hurts. Or maybe you have experiences, or you know people who have experiences where that word submit, that really hard word, has actually been used like a weapon, has been a source of harm. Maybe you felt some sort of sting from broken relationships with your own parents or your own children that just don't look like the picture that Paul is painting. Or maybe you sat there in this majority white church in the middle of Black History Month, and you felt kind of uncomfortable, kind of squeamish, maybe even ashamed to listen to these words about slaves obeying their masters. Maybe you remember how those words have been used to prop up the system of slavery in this country, to uphold it, even to bless it. And the problem is that no matter how the words struck you, these words have an ugly past. These words have been misused and distorted, at sometimes poorly interpreted, and at sometimes poorly applied, so that over the years, they've helped to hold up these systems of oppression or abuse against women and children and African Americans. And Frederick Douglass was one of those African-Americans. This is his picture. Um, He was an escaped slave, and he lived as a free man actually right across the river in Anacostia. You can go visit his house. He was also a devout Christian, and he had something to say about this. This is reading from his autobiography. He says, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. The slave dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit in return covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. Those are hard words. Well, what Douglas is describing here 
is that ugly legacy of this passage. And yet the scripture itself is not ugly. It can't be. It was breathed by God himself. And it points us to a gospel of Jesus that is beautiful. And so for the last couple of weeks, I have been wrestling and wrestling and wrestling with God, asking, show me what is good and beautiful about this passage. Show me where is good news in these words. And so it's humbling, as much as it's a privilege, to preach on it tonight. To name and lament all of those ugly distortions, but to not stop there, to not throw the whole thing out, to actually seek and find the beauty of the gospel even here. So I actually want us to imagine this passage kind of like these stained glass windows that are up on the screen. And then we can think about how over the last 2,000-ish years since they were written, people have been bringing all of their cultural assumptions about race, about gender, all of their sin, their love of power, their love of money, and we've been doing it too. And we've just been stacking up these ugly cinder blocks to cover up this window so that now it's actually kind of hard to even see the glass. It's hard to see this passage for what it really is. And it's really hard to see the light of Christ shining through it and transforming what it touches. So my hope is that tonight we can take a sledgehammer to that wall, that we can start to break through it and to see what is beautiful, to see the light of Christ in it. And we only have like 18 minutes, so we're probably not going to tear the whole wall down. That would be great, but not tonight. But I really hope that we're at least going to make some holes. All right. So this analogy of light is actually really helpful here because it brings us back to the first chapter of Colossians, which we read a few weeks ago, where Paul made this amazing statement that the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son. And Eva Elizabeth did this amazing job lettering that on our chalkboard outside, so I would encourage you all to take a look. It's beautiful before you go. And I want to start there because that's where Paul started. That's where he started Colossians, with this beautiful picture of what Christ has done for us, not with rules for our behavior, but with this description of Christ's behavior, this inheritance of the saints in light. And so this story, this story of Jesus has been heard and received by these people of Colossa, slaves, free people, men, women, all sorts of people from all walks of life. And they have been gathering in this church to learn more about the story, to learn more about about Jesus. And they really want to grow. They really want to be mature. And so Paul writes them this letter that helps them get there. And they would have been sitting and hearing the whole letter read all at once, start to finish. The other remarkable thing about this letter, which we'll actually read next week, is that the person Paul sent to deliver it to this sort of ragtag house church 
was himself a fugitive slave who belonged to someone in the congregation. Paul sends him, his name's Onesimus, with the letter. So the fact that they would have heard this whole thing read all together means that before they heard the words that Ginny read tonight, they would have just heard a couple minutes ago the words of Colossians 1. The words where Paul calls them brothers and sisters, where he calls God their father and their head, where he calls himself Paul, and he calls the leader of their house church their servants. And it means that in just a few minutes after hearing this passage, they'll hear Paul call that runaway slave, that fugitive, a faithful and beloved brother who's one of you. So Paul is telling people this, and they are hearing it in the context of this entire letter from Colossians that's already shaking up their idea of what a household is. It's already reimagining a family of brothers and sisters who are Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free, people who are reconciled to one another as Christ, in Christ, people who are living under the headship of God as their father. That's the bigger household context of these rules. But what about the cultural context? Well, at this time, all through the Roman Empire, households were pretty much exactly the way this passage describes them, a husband, a wife, children, and slaves. And actually, this is how the empire required households to be. A few decades earlier, the emperor Augustus instituted a set of laws. The Latin name for these laws kind of translates to restore traditional social norms, sort of this ancient equivalent of make the Roman Empire great again. And one of the laws was compulsory marriage. Every man and woman between certain ages was required to be married, or else they had steep taxes to pay. And the head of each household by law was the oldest man, was usually the father, and he answered to the head of all the households, to the father of the empire, to the emperor. And the father's job was to make sure that the wife and the children and the slaves behaved as good Roman citizens, that they paid taxes, and that they participated in the economy of the empire by making these sacrifices to the pagan gods there. See, the Roman Empire really cared about how people ordered their private lives because it knew that that's where people's loyalty is formed, in the home, in the ordinary daily habits, in those closest relationships with the people you bump up against all day long. That's really where you get people's hearts. That's where you get them devoted to the empire. And so the Greek and Roman philosophers had developed this ancient form of writing called a household code, and it told households how to live. The most famous one of these was Aristotle's. This is one that everybody would have known and to some extent be trying to live under. And it's up here on the screen. I'm going to read it. For the male is by nature fitted to command, better fitted to command than the female, and the older and more fully developed person than the younger and immature. All human beings that differ as widely as the soul does from the body are by nature slaves for whom to be governed by this kind of authority is advantageous. For the free rule the slave, 
the male, the female, the man, the child. So this is the philosophy that the Colossian church is living in. But earlier in Colossians chapter 2, they would have heard Paul warn them not to let anyone take them captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. So Paul's saying Christians no longer follow Aristotle. They don't follow this. They don't follow the traditions of the empire. So then how do they order their homes? So Paul writes his own household code. And that's what we get tonight. And I think you can already see that this code is really different. For one, and I've bolded it, because it constantly references the Lord. Fitting in the Lord, pleases the Lord, fearing the Lord, serving the Lord. The center and the motive and the purpose of everything in this new kind of household is Christ. And you'll probably also notice that Paul's code doesn't make any of those claims about a natural order. Aristotle is all about who is inferior to whom, who is by nature better suited for service or for leadership. But Paul has already said earlier and all over Colossians that in this new household of God, things are different. In this household, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And in an earlier letter to the Galatians, Paul threw in neither male nor female, just so there's no doubt what he's talking about here. And so Paul does something really radical in his code. He speaks to the women and the children and the slaves. He doesn't just address the men. He talks to the lowest people in the room. He acknowledges and he includes them in the conversation, just like Jesus was always doing during his earthly ministry. And so we see that in this household, everyone is equally subject to the rule of Christ. We see that the powerful now have duties and not just rights. We also see that the powerless now have rights and not just duties. Well, the Roman Empire was right about one thing. They were right to see that our homes, our work, our most ordinary spaces are where our loyalties get formed. Now, obviously, we don't live under the Roman Empire, but we do live in this pretty wildly consumerist society that's constantly trying to get us to serve its purposes with our money and our habits. And so Paul's household code retrains us. It trains us to have the loyalties of the kingdom of God. It trains us to put other people first. It trains us in habits of love and submission, service and work and sacrifice, in the places where it's the hardest, in the ordinary places, in the household. And we live by this code, and it's hard, but we do it in service to the kingdom of God. We do it in loyalty to Christ. And it means that the point of this whole thing is not only so that we will have happy marriages and obedient children, although that would be really great, (laughs) 
We live by this code so that our homes look more and more like the kingdom of God. So that our homes look more and more like this household in Colossa, like this new kind of household that God is creating. These open, generous places of welcome and hospitality and love. Places where we can serve all kinds of people because we've been training for it. And Paul has one more challenge. It comes in verses 23 and 24 when he's addressing the slaves. He says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. There's that word inheritance again that I talked about earlier. It's the same word that's in Colossians 1.12. And for a Jew like Paul, for many of his listeners in the room, inheritance would be this incredibly loaded word, a word that is just packed full of Old Testament promises going all the way back to Abraham. This word would evoke for the people the story of God rescuing them from slavery in Egypt and promising them a forever inheritance. And this inheritance was a land where they would dwell in freedom and in justice and in peace, where their slaves would be freed, where their widows and orphans and foreigners would be protected and supported. And so Paul drops this loaded word into his household code. And when he does that, he calls this church to remember the whole Old Testament witness against slavery. All of this is good news. It's challenging and liberating and beautiful and even empire-shaking news. So I pray that we can receive it. I pray that God would begin to dismantle whatever's blocking the light of Christ from shining through this passage. I pray that our homes would be places where we submit and serve one another with radical love, places where our loyalties get trained for the kingdom of God. Well, we're going to enter our normal time of silent reflection, and normally there's a static image on the screen, but we're going to try something different this week. Uh, it's a video from the National Cathedral in D.C., and I'm really grateful for Kim McKnight and a couple others of you, actually, for sending it to me for the ways that she and some of you notice beauty. I think it's just a nice way of reflecting on the light of Christ and inviting it to shine in our homes. <laughs>